We've been talking about the subject of tithing. It's been a long time since that's been taught here, and we laid some foundation for it by talking uh, last year about the two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, which is the real kingdom, and then there's the upside-down kingdom, which is what Satan has done to the kingdom of God by coming into that garden and by convincing that man and that woman to put themselves first above God. And the moment they did that, everything turned upside down in their lives. They saw everything backwards from the way God had intended it. And the problem is you and I are born into that kind of world. We're saturated with it in our thinking. We're saturated with our culture. All our media is saturated with it. And so much of our Christian culture is saturated with it also. So it's, it's infiltrated into the church because when we're born in that, we'll bring that into the church until we realize by looking in the Word of God and renewing our mind to the Word of God that that's not the way God operates, that that's not the way God thinks. And we spend time looking at that. We've looked at the subject of sowing and reaping, which is one of the principles of the kingdom of God. The world operates by the principle of buying and selling, and there's nothing wrong with that for your groceries or your car, but when it comes to operating in the kingdom of God, He doesn't operate by buying and selling. You can't buy God. <laughs> The price is too high. (laughs) But God's kingdom doesn't operate that way. It operates on sowing and reaping. And the basic difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of God is based on looking at God and what's best for God and focused on God. And as we do that, God pours out what's best for us on us. The world's kingdom, you've got to look out for yourself. Take care of yourself, protect yourself, provide for yourself. And if you do a good job of that, you'll get through, but you put yourself above everybody else. And that's inbred in our, in, our na- in our nature. When we come to Christ, we're moved back into the kingdom of God, but our mind still thinks the way we were trained, and our body still has flesh that that's, that's still uh, has that bent to it. And that's one of the reasons on Wednesday nights we're learning how to renew our mind, because God changed your nature on the inside when you came to Christ, but it's our responsibility to change how we think, to renew our mind to think the way God thinks, the way the kingdom of God operates, and no longer think the way the kingdom of the world operates. And that's what we've been talking about, and and tithing fits into that. And I just feel impressed this morning as we begin to get into what we're going to talk about this morning, to remind you why we're doing this. We're not doing this. Tithing is not about money. Tithing's not about, you know, getting your money because the church, the church is doing fine. We're doing very well because the church ties and then some. And because the church ties and then some, God's always taking care of the church. And God, therefore, to take care of the church has to take care of you because you are the church. But how well you participate in His taking care of you depends on how well you cooperate with His methods of doing things. But the reason we're talking about the subject of money and and tithing is because it is a key insight into how we see God and what God means in our lives. And we've just finished a series of meetings with Lafayette Scales here, talking about, and every time I turn around I see this subject, about idolatry. That the sin of Israel was idolatry. And that's the sin of the church too. We may not have little idols in the corner of our bedroom or living room that we bow down to, but we have other idols that we bow down to. It may be our job, our talent. It may be relationships. It's anything you put in your life that becomes more important to you than God and then becomes your source for anything that you should be turning And so that's what an idol is. And we've just spent time going through the book of Hosea with Lafayette Scales and seeing how that issue is personal to God because when you come to Christ, you're married to God. You're joined to Him. And God sees idolatry as an act of infidelity. It's choosing to reject Him and choose things He made in place of Him. And so that's why it's so important to God 
And one of those things can be money. And so how we handle money and how we handle money with regard to God is a direct insight into how we see God. We started in Genesis chapter 14 and we saw this, this, the first example of this. We saw Abram to whom God had made a covenant that he would take care of him and bless him. And then Abram goes and rescues his son Lot, who's been caught up in a, in a, in a, uh, a war that involved the place he lived in, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram goes and rescues his, his nephew Lot and brings back all of, the, all of the families, all of the people, and all of the goods that have been stolen from Sodom and Gomorrah and goes to return them. And the king says, no, you keep all the things, just give our families back to us. And Abram says, I will not touch anything from you that you've made me, you say you've made me rich. But before that, on the way back, Abram encounters a gentleman named Melchizedek. And he represents, if he's not a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, he represents Christ because he's the priest of the Most High God. And he reveals himself as the priest of the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth, and the one who's delivered you from all your enemies. And when Abraham has a revelation of who this priest is and who the Most High God is to him, Abraham's response is immediately to take a tenth of everything that he's just gained and give that to the priest who represents God. And that's the origin of the tithe. The word tithe means a tenth. Then we last time we talked, two weeks ago, we went back to the principle of the tithe and saw one of the main purposes behind the tithe. And we went into the, into the Garden of Eden and we saw that God created man. And he put him in the garden and God entrusted all of it to him and said, all of this is yours to take care of, to tend, to, to feed, and, and it's to yours to enjoy. And you can eat of every tree that's in the garden. There's just one tree you can't eat of. It's the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil because that tree's mine. And we saw that the purpose of that tree, one of the purposes of that tree was to provide a border, a barrier, a, 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 a border, a, a boundary, excuse me, to, te- to remind Abram, remind Adam, excuse me, that, that although all of this was in his possession, although he had the authority of God to operate in all of this, it was not his, it belonged to God. It was entrusted to him. That tree in the middle of the garden, every day he could see that tree and say, we can enjoy all of this, but that one tree, I can't touch. It doesn't belong to me. And that's a reminder that none of this really belongs to me. I'm a steward of all. I'm an owner of none of it. And then we ended by saying, that's one of the purposes of the tithe. Because as we get into the New Testament, and you'll discover this is not just an Old Testament principle. We get into the New Testament, what we'll see is that all of it belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. You belong to God. Everything you have belongs to God. Every beat of your heart belongs to God. And everything that we possess is something He's given to us to possess. And when you begin to realize that, it changes your attitude towards it. First of all, it gives you a sense of responsibility, not just empowerment. I can do what I want to do. But it also gives you a sense of privilege that God has entrusted to me. There have been several times I've prayed over our offerings, and and one of the things that I've prayed out several times has been, God, help us thank you that you would receive our tithes and offerings. And I had someone come up to me and said, it, it startled them to realize God doesn't have to receive anything from us. We think somehow he's obligated, we're, you know, he's blessed because we do this. No, it's the other way around. It's a privilege that God would receive anything from us when you realize who he is and who we are on our own. So the tithe is important because it's, 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 it, 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 that simple act of taking the first tenth of the increase in your life that God's brought to you, first of all, 
and keeping it separate as we're going to see today. And what we're going to talk about today is recognizing that the tithe is holy. When you recognize it's holy, it changes how you see it and how you treat it and what you do with it. And so that's what we're going to look at today, that the tithe is holy. Before we do that, we've got to talk a little bit about what it means to be holy. It's not something you hear a whole lot about in churches nowadays. We hear about the blessings of God and all that God wants to do on our lives. And we know the Bible says God's holy and we're supposed to be holy, but we really don't talk a lot about that. And we don't even, so therefore we don't really know, unless we study it, what holy means. It's this concept out there. I know we're supposed to be, but I know I, and I don't, I don't measure up. And because of that, I kind of feel uncomfortable talking about that and looking at that. But if we're going to talk about the fact that the tithe is holy, we need to understand what holy means. So that's what we're going to talk about today, or get into today, that the tithe is holy. Well, the word holy, the Hebrew word holy is kadosh, Q-A-D-O-S-H. And it comes from a word that means pure or devoted to. Holman's Bible Dictionary defines it and says this, The biblical use of the term holy means that it has to do primarily with God separating something from the world that he chooses to devote to himself. We're going to talk in a minute about the fact that God's holy, but the real concept of holy basically means something that God has chosen to be separated out and devoted to him exclusively. That's what makes something holy. So you can't choose to make something holy. Holiness is a response to a choice God's made to say, this is mine, that makes it holy. And so that's what, that's what the word holy means. It means pure or it means separated out for a purpose. And in the context of God, it means separated out to belong to Him. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Now, here's a place where we've got to begin to try to turn off our religious mind. Because every one of you that was raised in church or near church has some concept in your head of what holy means. And it's in most of our cases, I know it was in mine, it's this general idea of their perfection that I know I can't reach. So I don't want to really talk about it too much. But the Bible says, be holy as he is holy. That means it's possible to be holy. So what we're discovering is the word means primarily when it is applied to something or some people, it means set apart by God to belong to Him, to be devoted to Him. Now here's a stage where God, the children of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. God has delivered them, sent Moses, trained, prepared, and sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt. They've come supernaturally through the Red Sea. They've seen the army that was determined to destroy them. They see that army drowned in the the Red Sea. And now they've been out in the wilderness for a while. God's calling to the base of a mountain, right in the southern part of, of, of the Sinai Peninsula, where Saudi Arabia is today, Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up on the mountain, and he's going to, because he's going to, Tell Moses to bring the people around the base of the mountain so that God can meet with them. That's the setting here. Let's look at verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's Israel, and tell the children of Israel, 
You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, listen to this, a special treasure to me. Above all people, for all the earth is mine. God's saying, if you will do what I'm telling you to do, then you will be, to me, in my eyes, and in my treatment of you, a special treasure to God. A special treasure to God. If you will do what I say to do, if you will listen to me, here's what I want to make of you. And I will set you above all the people, for the, all the earth is mine. In other words, I can do with people what things what I want to do with, and what I want to do with you is separate you out, because you are a special treasure to me, and I want to set you above all the other people. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the first time that term's used. A holy nation. These are the words which you, Moses, shall speak to the children of Israel. So God is saying to Moses, I've called these people out of Egypt. I brought them to this place because there's something I want to make of them. In Egypt, they were slaves. They had taskmasters. They had Egyptians assigned over them to command them what they were to do. And as slaves, they had no choice but to obey. If they disobeyed, they died. And that's the mentality they had coming out of Egypt. That they were led by taskmasters who were cruel and mean and demanding. And God wants to change their thinking about Him. Because it's very natural to take your experience of leadership, experience of authority that you grew up with, and transfer that over to God when you begin to find out who He is. And that applies to us as well. Every one of us has grown up with some image of authority in our lives. Some image of what a father is to be like. In your case, that father may not have been there, but that forms an image. In many of our cases, our fathers were far from perfect. In all cases, our fathers were not perfect. And in most cases, did the best they could. But the image that you have of a father, of an authority, of someone who's responsible for taking care of you and also for training you and developing you, you formed, first of all, in your family, then in your schooling, then in the church, wherever you were before, whatever it is. And all of this fits into a pattern in our mind of an understanding that when we come to God, we naturally bring that over to Him and assume that's what He's like. This is why we have to make it a purpose to renew our mind and find out who God says He is and what God said He like. But back in this days, they didn't have a Bible they could hand out to them. They didn't have CDs. They didn't have, you know, DVDs and all that. So God came down to appear Himself. And he's preparing them for God to come down and meet with them. And he says, this is the message I want to get across. I brought them out of Egypt and delivered them. And I brought them to this place. 
Because I want them to be to me a special, unique people that belong to me, set apart from the rest of the world, above everyone else in my sight, to be a special, dedicated nation that belongs to me and I belong to them. And the term he used is to call them a holy nation. Holy in the sense that they're set apart from everything else and they're devoted to his purpose because they're special to him. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart, devoted to him and to his purpose. And that can only happen because he's put his hand upon it and said, I want it for me. That was very different than those taskmasters. Those taskmasters didn't care about the, the, Egyptian, the, 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 the Israel slaves. They just cared about what they produced. And the problem is there are many of us who brought that image over into the kingdom of God. And we think God only cares about us for what we can do for Him and what we can produce for Him. And so we take the lessons on giving and receiving and we think, well, God wants my money so He can do things with it. God doesn't need your money or my money. He owns it all. But what He wants is us. And He knows that what money means to us and the place we have it in our hearts and lives is a place that represents where He should be. And so we're in the process of renewing our mind to discover God's not a taskmaster. God's a loving Father, but He's a holy God. And God has chosen you. You're only here today because He chose you. You're only alive today to Christ because He chose you. And because He chose you, that makes you holy. I'm not saying you're living that way. In His sight, that makes you holy. That makes everything we have holy because He chose us and He's given what we have to us. All right. So what makes something holy isn't how it acts. What makes something holy is God's chosen it to belong to Him to treat it specially, and has put his hand on it. Now we then have a choice of whether we're going to act in line with that, but what makes you holy, what makes something holy, is God puts his hand on it, says, that's mine, that's dedicated for my purposes. But understand this, when something now belongs to God, God's responsible for it. We want to bring our bodies to God for healing, but we want to keep control over it. God, I'm bringing my body to you because I want you to fix it. I guarantee you'll have a whole lot more confidence when you've already turned your body over to Him as a living sacrifice because now you come to and say, God, there's something wrong with your body here. You fix it. It's yours. It belongs to you. But see, because it's our body, we figured we can do what we want with our body. That's what the root of women's rights over killing unborn babies, it's all rooted in the, I've got rights over my body. 
They're in for a rude awakening someday to find out whose body that really is and the responsibility they're going to have before God for what they used it for and what they did with it. And if you've done that, God forgives and God's gracious. So don't walk out of here condemned. But we need to recognize this is not my body. I don't have the right to just put in it what I want to put in it. I have a responsibility to treat it as God's property. But boy, when I begin to do that and something breaks in it, I have every right to go before Him and says, Lord, there's something wrong with your body. You need to fix it. Give you much more confidence. So if God, if it's been devoted to God, now He's responsible for it. It takes the pressure off of us. Because it's His. It belongs to Him. Alright. So that's what holy is. In a simple nutshell. So it comes to mean anything that belongs to God, the fact that He owns it or it belongs to Him makes it holy. So whatever belongs to God is holy. Now, because it belongs to God, then what we do with it is a direct indication of what we think of God. Clear example of that is God said... In John, I think it's chapter 16 or 14, Jesus said, Because you've loved me, whom the Father sent, He loves you. He loves you because of how you responded to me, whom He gave to you. So it's natural. I mean, it's just even with, our, with children, your own children. Someone treats my children or my grandchildren well, they treated me well. In fact, I'm more concerned with how they treat them than me. Because they're mine, they, and of course they don't belong to me in the same sense. But if I entrusted something that's precious to me to you, how you would treat that is an indication of what you think of me. I remember when my daughter was a teenager and she wanted to go out with somebody, and I had to explain to her, you're not going out with him because I don't know him. I said, do you think I give my keys to my car to him? When I don't know how well he drives? When I don't know what his traffic record is? You really think I'd hand the keys to my new car over to him? Do you think I'd take, your mother would take her, her, her engagement ring and give it to him to take care of? Well, no. And I said, don't you think you're more precious to us than that car because how he treats you is a reflection of how he treats me so if he came up to the door you know sauntering up saying hey is she ready (laughs) his attitude towards me is a reflection. His attitude towards her is a reflection of what he thinks of me. In the same way, whatever God's put in your hands that belongs to him, how you treat it is an indication of what you think of him. What we're talking about is the tithe is holy because God's put his hand on it 
and says it's devoted to me. We're going to deal down the road with Old Testament versus New Testament because there's some of you outright that now I know are thinking, yeah, but that's just under the Old Testament. We'll talk about that later on. Just trust me at this point. It's not just in the Old Testament. And so that's what we're looking at right now. All right. Let's, let's just go back and establish that God's holy. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a vision that Isaiah had, which is part of his call into the ministry. We're just going to go. He was called up into heaven in a vision. And he saw angels, and he describes in verse 2 what those angels are like. Verse 3 says, And one of these angels cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It goes on to say that the doorposts of the throne room were shaken. And his reaction when he saw who God was in His holiness is, Oh my goodness, I'm a man of unclean lips. And if you read the background of Isaiah, you'd think he was a pretty good man. By comparison, he was a holy man. But when he saw God's holiness, his first reaction is, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unholy lips who lives among a people who are unholy. And an angel brings a coal over and touches his tongue, his lips, to to purify them so that he can speak the words of God as a prophet. Over in Revelation, you'll need to turn there, verse 4, there's the same scene in heaven, in the book of Revelation where the four and twenty elders are fall down and worship and say again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Worthy is the Lamb. So the point is, holiness is who God is. He is a holy God. And therefore, whatever God chooses as His own, that makes it holy. But now we have the choice of whether we're going to act holy or not. You can't act holy and then God says, oh, you're holy. What makes you holy is He sets you apart as His, devoted to Him. And the challenge we have is we have trouble letting go of everything else so that we can be devoted to Him. The pain of separating, I should do it this way, the pain of separating from the things of this world that we've trusted and relied on to allow ourselves to be devoted to Him. But isn't that what the garden scene was like in the beginning? They were just all His. They were all His. And the fear, the shame, and all the evil stuff that came from that all came when they stopped being devoted to His purposes and started becoming devoted to their own. They started touching what was holy and making it profane and therefore unclean. All right. So God is holy. Whatever God chooses then is holy. I'm just going to go down through a a list of some things that the Bible says God chose to be devoted to Him and that's what makes it holy. Just as a sample. In Exodus 3 verse 5, you don't need to turn there, but it's where, where God, Moses has first, he's out in the wilderness, and he's coming around the base of a mountain, it may well be this mountain, and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. That's because the bush is not actually on fire, it's the glory of God shining out of it. And he pulls aside to see what it is, 
And the bush speaks to him. Of course, it's God's voice speaking to him. And one of the things he tells him to do is take your sandals off for the place that you're standing on is holy ground. We've sung that song before. We are standing on holy ground. And so why, why did he tell him to take his sandals off? Because where did the sandals come from? They were something man had made. And, and God would not allow something that man has made to be what Moses stood on, on holy ground. So he took his shoes off because why? Because who made, God's, who made Moses' feet? God made Moses' feet. That's why you'll find elsewhere God says when he talks about, the, about altars. He says, you can only build an altar to me that's made of ground or of stones that have never been cut by a man. Because the moment a man puts his hand to, to do something to it, he profanes it. In God's sight. Because the, the earth God made, the stones God made, and God will only be worshipped with something He's made, not something we've made out of it. And oh, we could go off on there. Because when we make our own image of what God must be like, when we say, I know the Bible says that what God's like, but I don't believe that, then we're making idols ourselves because we're worshipping a God we want Him to be, not the God He says He is. That's idolatry. That's just as much idolatry as building a statue and putting in your backyard or in your living room. It's making God into who you want Him to be. That is idolatry. And so, so here, God says, to, here's a place where God met with a man. God says, I've chosen this place to meet with you. That makes it holy. Take your sandals off. Over in Joshua chapter 6, there's another scene like this where Moses' successor, Joshua, is at the, at the, on the, the, the east side of the, of the Jordan River, ready to cross over, facing Jericho, this overwhelming obstacle to the land that God has promised them. And we're going to look at that in a minute. And God says to him, a, 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 an angel appears to him, a captain of the host, and starts speaking with him. And once he realizes that this is, not, this is God speaking to him, the angel says, take your shoes off, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. See, we just kind of saunter into church. Hey, yeah, this is our church. Nice rugs, nice, you know, just come in to sit, you know, and we just talk and do what we want before service starts, and, you know, hey, how are you doing today? And all, that's fine. But that reflects our attitude, what we really believe this is. We don't see this as holy ground. We see this as church. A building where we come on Sundays and Wednesdays to hear messages and learn and grow and meet one another, and that's okay. But if we want God to be here with us and visit us, I know He's here by faith, I know He's here in us, but if we want God's presence here, we've got to begin to recognize that He's a holy God. And therefore, this has to become holy ground. Not religious, not afraid, reverence. Doesn't mean we've got to take our shoes off out there. Although if he appears, he may tell us to do that. But it's, a, it's an attitude of reverence that this is the house of God. I know we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, I, but, but when we come together corporately, we are, creating, we are to create an atmosphere where a holy God can come 
And the more we reflect that holiness in our attitude, the more open the heavens are for him to come and to visit us here. Not just talk to us, but visit us here. Okay. So he meets with people. The places he meets with people is holy ground. We've already seen in Exodus 19.6 that when he chooses a people, that makes them holy. In Exodus 20 verse 8, God chooses a day, a Sabbath day. He says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a one day out of seven, God says, that's mine. Now, we're New Testament, we don't practice that. But I wonder if we've lost something. I wonder if we've lost something. Just as Lafayette talked about. We've got, I don't know, was it 168, 167 hours in a week? And we come and spend two of them, if we do come every week, and give two hours for God to impart into us what He needs to impart into us. And the other 166 were in the world's hands. And wonder why we and the church are weak and anemic. That doesn't mean we need to be in church all the time. But we need to recognize that He is a holy God and that we are a holy people. And recognize, He says, keep the Sabbath for it's holy. That means it's my day. Six days you can do what you want. I mean, obviously, within the other guidelines, within the other commandments. But this day belongs to me. It's amazing when you start putting God first. It's amazing when you start putting God first. That's really all the tithe is with your finance. When you you start putting God first with your time, you start putting God first with your finance. Wherever you start putting God first, it's amazing what a difference that will make in your life because there He's commanded His blessings. Well, we better not dwell on the Sabbath because that interferes with football games and basketball games and all kinds of other things we don't want to get into because they're important to us. All right. Okay. God chose in the Old Testament a place where He could meet with His people and His priests, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in that tent, the tent of the testimonies, He had two rooms. The outer room was called the holy place. And the inner room where only the high priest could come once a year with the right sacrifice, that was called the Holy of Holies. And in that place, when they did what they were supposed to do, God's presence in a form dwelt there. What's called the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in that place. The instruments that were used for worship. God had a special way that they were to be made, a special materials they were made of. And when they were made, most of them were to be anointed with oil called the holy anointing oil, which he goes on and tells us. I'll give you the references to that if you're you're writing these down. The garments worn by the priest, Exodus 28.2. The garments that the priest had to wear when they came into his presence had to be special garments. And they had to be washed a certain way. The priest had to be washed a certain way because these garments were to be holy and the priests were to be holy. Why? Because they were coming to worship a holy God. Their garments were dedicated to His service, devoted to His service. The oil that was used to anoint them was a special compound. And the instructions in... um, I'll give you this reference. The instructions in... 
Exodus 30, verse 32, is that they could not be, this formula could not be used for any other purpose. So this particular oil could only be used for the purpose of anointing God's, the priestly garments, the priests, anything that was devoted for his service had to be anointed with this oil, which represented the oil of the Holy Spirit. And they could not use that compound, that formula, for any other oil. If they did, the man that did that was kicked out of the camp, separated out. That oil could only be used for his purposes because it was devoted to his purposes. It was called the holy anointing oil. All right. And finally, we're going to look at Exodus 30, verse 10, talks about the Day of Atonement, the one day a year where the sin of the nation was put on a goat and there were several other things they were done. And that was called, that day was to be marked to be holy, devoted completely unto the Lord. All right, now let's bring this down. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Very familiar verse. We're not going to, that's not where we're going to go, which is verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, which means know Him, and He'll direct your path. Verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear or reverence the Lord, depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Verse 9. Honor the Lord, honor the Lord, honor the Lord with your possessions and the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Honor the Lord with the first fruits, not the leftovers. That's not honoring. Imagine somebody invites you to a meal at their house and you go in there and you've just been looking forward to this meal. You know, wow, they've invited us over. We're going to have this meal. Isn't this wonderful? And you get there and you go to the dining table, go to the kitchen table. You don't go to the dining room table. And what you find out there is a bunch of these white plastic containers that you get when you have, you know, your left. And these are leftover things they've heated up in the microwave. It says, hey, here's half a lasagna from Friday. Here's, you know, part of the pork chop that's left over from Tuesday. Here's all these things, you know. Hey, help yourself. I mean, that might fill up your stomach, but what would that tell you that you mean to them? Yet what do we do with God? If that tells me, they don't think a whole lot of me. I mean, I'm glad they remembered me, but I was kind of expecting to be treated, I was hoping to be treated... On the other hand, you go to someone's house and the nice china's out and you know, the, the very best that they have is out and you can tell they've worked you know, for all day or they've put a lot of effort into what they're bringing to you and they bring it to you and they serve you first. They make you feel special and important, valuable and cared for. And yet we come to God and we give Him what's left over. Well, I've paid this bill and I've done this and I've taken care of this. Let's see, what's left over to give... God, what do I think of him when I do that? But you don't understand, Pastor, I've got all these bills to take care of. But that's not recognizing that the first part was already his to begin with. 
I was never going to be paying the bills out of that anyway. However, notice what he says, if you honor the Lord with the first fruits so that your barns will be filled. Because you see, God has a way of multiplying back to us. It's all relationship. It's all relationship. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. Honor the Lord. Not pay a tax. Honor Him. Is He worthy to be honored? That's the question you need to ask yourself. How do I see Him? Because the way I see Him is proven by what I do with this. Honor Him. Is He do that honor? In Malachi, which we'll end with, in Malachi, he talks about in the beginning, we've talked about this before, he says, would you, would you treat the governor that way? Would you treat some respected official? Means you invite it to the White House. Regardless of your political view, you're one of the White House, I mean, there's a sense of awe going in that place. Sit in the Oval Office. Wow. You go in there in your flip-flops? Hey, I'm a taxpayer. This is my office too, you know? Hey, cool. Mm -hmm. Sense of history. Sense of honor. Regardless of who's been in there, who's in there, whatever it is, the person, it's the place. How much more? You talk about history. How much more God's history? And what God's done for you and for me. Honor Him with the first fruits, the best, because that reflects my attitude towards Him. Turn with me now. We're going to look at an example of this. To um, Joshua chapter 6. We mentioned that earlier. Joshua chapter 6. We're going to pick up here. What's happened is the, the, the angels told him what to do, which is basically to march around the city once a day for six days. And on seven day, march around seven times and, and, and shout, and, the, and they're, to, they're basically to, to praise God there. And he said, and the, and the walls will fall down. Then, Mo, then uh, Joshua goes back to explain this to the people. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Well, I'm going to look at verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord for destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are in her house shall live because she hid the messengers which we sent. And you, talking to the people, by all means, this is once the walls have fallen down, once they've conquered the city, all that's in that city now is going to be laid before them. By all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed, when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. That word consecrated is the same word that we've read as holy. This is the first city in the promised land. This is the first place where they're going to acquire something in the promised land. God has said to them, Everything in that city is mine. There are some things that are accursed and there are some things that are sacred. You'll not touch the accursed things. The sacred things you'll not take either. They're going to go into my treasury because they belong to me. The first thing you take. Now what happens, of course, if you know the story, is that's exactly what happens. 
They do what he says. The walls come down. The people are all destroyed. And they take all the goods, all the gold, the silver, and they put in the treasury except for one man named Achan who takes an idol and some silver and gold and he buries it in his tent under a rug. The next day or so, they go out against the city Ai. We'll go over to chapter 7. They go out against a little tiny city that's not well fortified at all. They will go up against that city confident that just as they discovered, conquered Jericho, they're going to have God's going to be with them just as he was with Jericho. He's going to be with them as they go to a tiny little Ai. What's the big deal with Ai? But they're routed. I remember now, it's like 3,000 Israelites are destroyed, are killed, and we pick up and Joshua's on his face crying before God of what happened over in chapter 7. He's lying down, crying out, saying, what did you do? How did you fail us? How does this happen? Verse 10. So the Lord God said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face? Israel has sinned. They've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they've taken some of the accursed, it also means devoted, things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their self. Notice he says they've stolen it. Who did they steal it from? God. It's the, 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 the accursed things are devoted things to God. He says they've taken the things I told them were mine. They've taken for themselves and they've hidden it. Verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand, could not stand before their enemies. Joshua's crying out to God, you took care of us in Jericho, how come you failed us here? And God's saying, I didn't fail you here. You took what was devoted to me, and you took it for yourselves. Therefore, when you stood, you stood alone. They took them and went in the midst of the tent, verse 23, brought them to Joshua. And all, excuse me, I got in the wrong place here. For the, verse 12. The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they had become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with them anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up and sanctify yourselves and your people. All right. Now turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. You knew we were going to get there sometime. We have some background now. Starts by saying, Behold, I'm going to send a messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, that's Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? Because he's going to be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. When you purge gold and silver, what you're doing, you're separating out the impurities from the pure. Because pure gold's worth much more than gold that has, has impurities mixed in it. That's the difference in... The carrots, I guess, from what I understand. 
Look at this. Purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. That means it's possible to bring an offering to God that's not in righteousness. See, God's not looking for the money. He's looking for the heart and the attitude towards Him. And when we come in unrighteousness, our attitude is already wrong. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien, because they did not fear or reverence me or honor me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. There's one of the reasons we know this is true in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. Therefore you shall not be consumed, O Jacob, in other words, I'm not going to destroy you. Look at down in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's what we heard this week with Lafayette, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, all right, in what way shall we return to you? Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Stop there a second. You can only rob someone of something they own. This is not the pen <laughs> that those in the office know, but this is my pen. The only way you could rob this, I can't rob myself of this pen. Why? Because it's mine. But if you snuck in my office and you took it against my will from my desk, you could be accused of robbing me of my pen because it's my pen you took into your hands for your own and for your own purposes. That's what's included in the word rob. So to, for God to say you've robbed me means there's something that in God's eyes was His that we've taken from Him. That's what the word rob means. They're saying, well, we want to return to you, but how are we going to return to you? He says, will a man rob God? And yet you've robbed me. And you say, well, in what way could we have possibly robbed you? In tithes and offerings. The point here is, if God's saying that when we withhold tithes from Him, we're robbing Him, it must be because the tithe belongs to God and we've now learned if something belongs to Him it's holy. You notice when we, I pray over the offering I'm praying over the tithe which already belongs to you that's holy. And if you'll begin to recognize that what God has done He's not like the government. The government takes what's out of your paycheck before you ever get it because it collects your taxes. God, out of relationship, gives it all to you, your increase, expecting you and me to take that first tenth, set it aside, consider it as holy. It's never been mine, but it's entrusted to me, and what I do with it is a reflection of the honor that I have towards God or don't have towards Him. So when I take that first tenth, set it aside, 
treat this as holy and now bring it on Sunday or whenever. And God, I'm worshiping you with this tithe that you've entrusted to me. It's a reminder of who you are. It's a reminder that everything I have has come from you. My very breath, my life, my salvation, all that I have has come from you. You've entrusted this to me. Thank you for entrusting it to me. You're better than the government. They don't trust me. I'm giving this willingly to you as a worship, act of worship, because it's something holy that belongs to you. If you do that, you watch what he'll do with the other 90%. Let's go close with that and then we'll go on to something else. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. There are a few places where God says, come, try me out. Watch what I'll do. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, not the government, the windows of heaven, and pour out on you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. So that he will not destroy the... I've had situations come up where some unexpected disaster happened and a washing machine broke down or a car broke down and I didn't have the money to fix it, but I had tithe. And I would go to God and say, God, this car broke down. I don't have the money to fix it. The devourer's trying to take what's left of me. You've made a promise to me. I've been faithful to take that first tenth and worship you and entrust it with you. Your job is to fix that and take care of the devourer. I'm going to go to bed. And every time I've done that, somehow, someway, God solved that problem. Either the money showed up, the thing suddenly worked. That's his business, how it happens. He's here to rebuke the devourer. But I've tested him and proven him over and over and over again. And he says, come, find out, see what I'll do. Come on. And you can be jumping up and down, rebuking the devil all you want. But I'm telling when you, God moves you aside and says, he's mine, I'm going after him. I've told you the story of one time I had a judge argue my case against my opponent. Oh, I knew enough to keep my mouth shut and let him do it. All right. So that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground and the vine shall not bear the fruit of you in the field. This also is talking about our offspring, our children, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I'm telling you, when you treat God the way He deserves to be treated, God will pour things out on you. We're going to talk about, you said, but some of you said, but I've been doing it, it's not working. We'll talk about that later on, so hang on. But it starts with our understanding of what the tithe is, what its purpose is. And today our understanding is to understand that it's holy. And if we treat it as holy, then we're treating God as holy. If we treat it casually or not at all, that's a reflection on our idea of God. Now if we don't know that, that's one thing. But now we know that. Let's pray. Father, First of all, we come to you and repent 
and it can creep into any of us at any time, of taking, of either not tithing or taking the tithe for granted and just seeing it as something that we've got to pay or we do pay as a matter of course. Forgive us for being casual about this that is holy to you, devoted to you. We come right now, Father, and I pray for those that that it's just a struggle with. They want to do it, but they're having trouble trusting you. Help them to trust you, Father. Help them today to begin to take a step towards that. Show them how trustworthy you are, Father. For those that have forgotten or for because of some situation have stopped doing it, Lord, we repent of that. Help them to come back. Help us to learn to put you first in every area of our lives. For that grace, we thank you right now. In Jesus' name.